on him today. So we good to go? All right, so Father, we come in Jesus' name and through his blood. We thank you, Lord, for the open heaven that's here, your presence here. And Lord, I just thank you, even as this word's going to go out, for your precious Holy Spirit to move upon every one of us, all those that are listening. There's many that follow this through podcasts, etc. Lord, I thank you wherever people are that are going to be listening or watching. I thank you for your precious Holy Spirit moving upon every one of us as your people. And as the word of the Lord goes out, the Holy Spirit just to help us to get locked in and focused, to give you our best ear, our full attention, our focus. There won't be any distractions. That will be good soil of hearts and minds and lives, anointed eyes and ears that maybe by the Holy Spirit we can see things we couldn't see before and hear things that we couldn't hear and understand things that were beyond us. But God gives us his grace. And so, Lord, I thank you for speaking through me. Everything that needs to be said tonight as the parable of the seed and the sower, like living seeds of truth sown into good soil, watered by the Holy Spirit, take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes. And we know Jesus said the birds of the air try to steal the seed. So, Lord, we submit this unto you. We resist the devil. We must flee. We all agree together. Anything that would try to hinder this in any way from getting where it's supposed to and accomplish what it's supposed to, we bind you in Jesus' name right now. You will back off. And, Lord, I thank you for your angels just clearing away any warfare. And, Lord, we stand on the promise that your word will not return void, but it will go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. We thank you for it. We thank you for hearing and answering our prayers tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I dealt with a couple sermons about revival, what revival is. I talked about a desperate cry. And God is not going to put his deep groan where he's not going to do something of significance. And we talked about the first sermon about how Jesus came to where Lazarus had died. And uh, before raising him, the Bible says Jesus groaned. There was a deep groan that brought resurrection life. And tonight, we're going to look at something uh, a little bit different, but just kind of going back into that. So there's a deep groan, there's a a desperate cry, there's a deep intercession that God puts somewhere when he's wanting to do something significant. And then it moves, we started talking about revival, the fruits of revival, historic revivals. Last week, we looked at the Reformation, uh, which simply broke off Roman Catholicism, but tonight, I want to look at the first great awakening, but I can only deal with some of it. I'm going to look at the life of John Wesley, and then in the future sermons, we'll look at Whitfield and Edwards, etc. But this is probably one of the more important sermons that I'm, I'm going to bring during this series, because I'm going to focus on what Wesley did, and that is the pure gospel. And how many knows that the Bible says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation? It's the pure gospel. It's not some type of religious thing. So we're going to look at that tonight, and I want to go ahead and jump into that. But as a historical pattern, God has always shown up in the worst of times. I've studied revival history uh, since, you know, back at the Reformation, if you call that a revival. But from the mid-1700s through, I've read a lot of books, I've done a lot of research, and Every time that God pours out his spirit, it seems like it is the worst of times. It's just people, God's true remnant people get desperate and begin to cry out to him because the times have become so dark. And we're living in a time like that in America right now. But God shows up at the worst of times and miraculously turns things around. Now, I believe that the prayers of the Moravians played a major role 
and the first great awakening of our nation in England. So the Moravians, I'll talk a little bit about them, but let me just give you this. 2 Chronicles 7.14, it says, If my people called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. But if my people, not the world, if my people, and at a time when we need prayer, like no other time, it seems like a lot of places have been focused on the wrong things. But right now, we're living in a time where we desperately need prayer warriors to arise and begin to really intercede because it's only going to be through prayer that truly the harvest is going to come in. And hopefully, this sermon, I can help, help you understand where I'm coming from with that. But it's prayer and it's the move of the Spirit. Like we talked about last week, it has to be the Holy Spirit that is moving to open people up in the salvation. All right, so let me just give you a little bit of background in this. So the awakening that came to England and America was in the mid-1700s. Now, before that, do you really listen to this? I, I try to limit how much uh, history I get into because it can get bogged down with that. But England, from about 1660 to 1700, so right before the awakening, Listen to historical descriptions of how it was. It says here that England began to violently persecute the Puritans, throwing off any moral restraint. Historians were writing about this. It was described that every sixth house, everybody say sixth house, began to make and sell gin. So alcoholism began to be rampant. Deism replaced the teaching and understanding of the Puritans, and moral decline plunged the nation into godlessness, drunkenness, immorality, and gambling. The deist views of God were like this. They viewed God as like a clockmaker, that he would make the clock, get the clock running, and then just leave the clock to do its own thing, you see. And that's a deist view of God. And that began to really take root in England, along with the modern science that began to come, it began to play a role where people were getting away from the purity of the Puritans as far as the gospel and the simplicity of the gospel, the scriptures. These things were beginning to be viewed in a very negative way as being archaic. And so the Puritans were now being viewed as a thorn in the side of society and during this time, nearly 2,000 ministers were forced out of their pulpits. Did y'all hear what I just said? And so the church, though, here's where the church made the biggest mistake, in my opinion. The church tried to respond to this persecution with apologetics. So when you begin to try to respond to this now with dry theology, People don't care about your dead, dry theology and your dead, dry religion. So as the church tried to respond in the wrong way, both the high and the low class dropped out of church and lost interest altogether. Dry religion began to fill the churches and godliness exploded in the culture. So that was from 1660 to 1700 in England. Now, there was a man in Germany in 1724, this is about a couple decades later, 
His name was Count Zinzendorf, and he was a very wealthy man. And he purchased some area in, in Germany, and it was named Hernhut, which means the Lord's Watch. So as he purchased this area, Moravia was having a lot of problems. So there were refugees leaving Moravia, and they came to that area. And Count Zinzendorf had bought this land, and the Moravians came to live on the land. And as Christians, Count Zinzendorf encouraged them that they needed to begin to have prayer because they were, there was a lot of infighting, and they weren't getting along, and they were having a lot of problems. So Zinzendorf met with some of the leaders. They took communion together. He said, guys, we need to pray. And so there's no, in my opinion, what I've seen, there's no historical account of the real deep specifics. But the Moravians began to pray to such a degree that they were holding watches. So you, something like this, I'm, I'm just speculating here, but maybe from 6 in the morning till 8, different families would pray, then from 8 to 10 different families. But they ended up covering 24 hours a day, seven days a week in prayer. This prayer began something generational. It went from parent to child as they grew up and their children. This, ha- this lasted for 100 years. And I believe that the powerful prayers of the Moravians impacted uh, what we now know as the Great Awakening, okay? So as God began, as they began to really pray, what does the Bible say? It, say, it says, if my people will humble themselves and pray, seek my face. As they began to really pray and seek the face of God, God began to open the heavens over Hernhut, and the glory came in that place, and the Moravians began to really know the Lord. How many knows there's a big difference between knowing about the Lord and knowing the Lord? And so they began to really know the Lord, and they began to have his heart. And the Moravians, in that atmosphere of prayer and the presence of God, they began to see a revival in their community. And so they began to send out missionaries, but there were two different types of missionaries they sent. Some of them felt called to go awaken the churches. So they would go minister in churches. Others felt called to the lost, and so they would seek out the lost, and they would witness, etc. Now, this was very important in the history here because, number one, as I've stated, I believe their prayers had a lot to do with revival breaking out. Okay, I can't emphasize that enough. There will never be a move of God without prayer, ever. It's not going to happen. It's not just going to happen. Somebody prayed it in, number one. But number two, they had a very significant role in the life of John Wesley. Now, Let's go back and let's look at John Wesley a little bit. Uh, John Wesley was raised in a very strict Anglican home. And so the Anglican church, for those that don't know, is really not altogether that different from Roman Catholicism in that it's just very religious. A lot of high church. Basically, when the Reformation happened and everybody, a lot of people broke away from Rome, um, Henry VIII's uh, proclivities caused him, through divorce and etc., that he knew the church wouldn't accept him. So he started the Church of England. Okay, so that's the Anglican Church. It, it's a very religious structure. But John Wesley grew up in the Anglican Church. It was very strict. His mother was an incredible woman, but she raised all those kids, but she was real strict. It was very orderly. And so that impacted John Wesley in a good way, but... John Wesley grew up, even though he knew about the Lord, he knew the scriptures, 
he was in church his whole life. It was only later on in life that he actually got born again. And I'm going to show you that. But as he was growing up as a child, his father, his name was Samuel Wesley. Now, remember how I described the climate. Around 2,000 ministers expelled from the pulpit. A lot of persecution was going on, okay? So I want you just to hear this. So Samuel Wesley was a faithful minister in the Anglican Church. He pastored in Epworth, England. And this was during the time that things were like this. Alcoholism was rampant, sexual immorality, and a lot of persecution against the church. Now, in that climate, Samuel, being a pastor, he was betrayed by a servant concerning a 30-pound debt he couldn't pay and was put in prison. But because of the climate of that day, he was very concerned because he felt like he was leaving his parishioners like lambs among the wolves. But listen to this. The people of the city were so persecuting of Christianity that they came to the Wesley house. And understand that the father is in prison over a little debt that he just simply couldn't pay, okay? And they come over to this guy's house and they stabbed his cows, his milk cows, causing their milk to dry up. They were doing this with the intention of starving the family. Now, this woman was there with kids and they were trying to, to cause the, the family to starve to death, basically. They tore the latch off the back door they almost chopped off the leg of their family pet dog, and they finally burned down the Wesley house, which, of course, was the parsonage where the pastor and his family lived. And so there was a lot of very violent persecution against Christians. Samuel Wesley talked about that house burning. His wife got out. His kids got out. But he said his wife was covered in ash. Her lips were black. She had some, some burns, nothing that was life-threatening, but it was very serious. And, and the last person to get out of that house was John, little John Wesley as a child, barely made it out alive. You can't tell me the devil was not trying to kill that young man because the devil knew that God's hand was on him. So now let's fast forward a little bit. John Wesley's grown up now. Around the age of 32, this would be January of 1735, and he was aboard a ship called the Simmons. This is a famous story, and this is one of my favorite John Wesley stories right here, where it all began. A large wave, so here they are sailing down uh, the sea. A large wave comes, and it breaks over the hull of the boat, and it destroys the main sail. The big old wave comes through. All of a sudden, the main sail, the mast just breaks into pieces, collapse. Hysteria ensues. John himself was very fearful, but guess who was on the boat? Not just a bunch of fearful English men and women, but there just happened to be some Moravians from Germany that were on the boat. So you had John and all these others that are just totally panicking. They think my life is over. I'm going to die. And he looks over at these Moravians and they're over there singing songs. And he says to him, why are you so calm? And they tried to explain to him, well, basically to live is Christ, to die is gain. We know where we're going. We're at peace with our maker. And here's the thing about that. John Wesley did not really understand that. Remember, he grew up religious. He knew all about the Lord, but he didn't really know the Lord himself yet. So Wesley, um, anyway, this prompted Wesley 
he began to understand that the Moravians had something he did not have. Did y'all hear what I said? The Moravians had something he did not have. And so Wesley, he, he was moving in ministry at this time before he was even born again. Remember, he's religious, but he was moving in ministry. But he was relatively unsuccessful. He was trying to reach some of the Indians. But listen to this. This is where it changes. Wesley's spiritual journey found, he found himself at a place called Aldersgate. This is a very famous story, if anybody knows about Wesley. He ends up at Aldersgate. It's May the 24th, 1738, around 9 o'clock or so, quarter to 9. He writes in his journal this. He said he was listening to Martin Luther's teachings on the book of Romans. Remember the Reformation? Martin Luther, what was his message? You're not saved through the church. You're saved by faith in Christ alone. He was listening to this. And Wesley wrote in his journal about a quarter to nine, he says, while describing this, he said, a deep change he felt in his heart. Wesley stated, I felt as though my heart was strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ alone for salvation that day. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Isn't that awesome? So this was the first move of God in Wesley's life that he, the seed was planted in the days that he was on that ship with the Moravians. The seed was planted. He knew that they had something with God he didn't. He knew that they had some type of an assurance of salvation that they had some kind of a relationship. And all that Wesley knew was just legalism. He knew do this, don't do that. Strict. Uh, it was all about that type of relationship with God, if you will. It wasn't really a relationship, but it was just the do's, the don'ts. It was legalism. And so Wesley, after this being born again, he remembered the Moravians. So he traveled that winter and visited them. And he stayed with the Moravians for a time. Now, upon his return back from being with them to England, he began to aggressively evangelize his people in England. And he had such a heart for the Anglican church he grew up in. But here's the sad thing. As Wesley had, you understand, this radically changed Wesley's life. He grew up in church his whole life. I mean, his dad was a pastor, so he knew all of the culture. He knew the lingo. He knew a lot of scriptures. He knew all about the Lord. He could quote the word. He knew uh, the do's and don'ts, all the rules. Yet the sad truth is, if he had perished in that boat that day, he, had, he wouldn't have gone to heaven. That's, that's the thing about the gospel. People can live very moral lives and still go to hell when they die. And I remember the, the message at Brownsville all those years. You know, you can go to hell with a communion wafer in your mouth, right? Baptismal water is still dripping from your face. It's not religion that's going to save you. You must be born again. And so the simplicity of the gospel, that is we, just like with Wesley here, he heard the teachings of Martin Luther, the book of Romans, and he realized that he had to just simply put his faith in Christ alone, that he saw Jesus, if you will, on that cross and the blood 
that was shed from Jesus's body that was a payment for his sin. Jesus had died in his place and took his punishment. And that's what he was saying here, that he was saved from the law of sin and death. So the simplicity of the gospel is not that you can earn your salvation. How many people all over the world, even in Christendom, think that, well, if I do this and don't do that, if I'm a good person, if I measure up, if I go to church enough, if I do all these things, that I'll end up in heaven. None of that is actually going to save you. It is not by works that you're saved. You can't be saved by works. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory. So it's not going to be the works, but it's simply putting your faith in Christ alone that there's a new birth. So when Wesley saw Jesus for who he is and saw that sacrifice in his place, and he saw him there in his mind, hanging on that cross, paying for his sin, he understood that the blood that shed from Jesus was kind of like a spiritual soap that would wash all of his sins away and wash away all that pollution. And once there is a washing away of all the pollution, then the Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside a true believer, and that is where you're born again, because the Holy Spirit enters you. And that's why John Wesley said, my heart was strangely warmed. What happened? An assurance now that the, saint, the Holy Spirit would bear witness with the inner spirit of Wesley that he was now a child of God. He was born again. And Wesley, being so excited about this encounter, he goes and spends time with the Moravians. Of course, these were his people, a people that knew God. They knew the Lord Jesus Christ. They, 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 they were people that lived in prayer and revival. And so after spending time with him, now he's going to go evangelize. But when he gets back to England, the, unfortunately, history records the Anglican church was not interested in his gospel. He even went to Epworth to his own father's church and tried to preach, and they ran him off. See, I'll tell you something. Just like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, a lot of times religious people do not want the Lord and they do not want the true gospel. They don't want the move of the Holy Spirit. They just want their religion and they will persecute true Christianity. So true biblical Christianity, if you want to know what it is, you need to read the book of Acts. Where the sick are healed, where demons flee, and the power of God comes down. Amen? All right, so... Wesley goes back and he begins to preach. He tries to go as a son of a minister to go to these different churches. They didn't want to hear it. They begin to really persecute Wesley. So people say, well, why did Wesley preach in the streets? Well, I'll tell you why. Because he couldn't preach in the churches. Doesn't that sound like Jesus in many ways? That how the religious didn't want to hear what he had to say. The Pharisees and Sadducees were his enemy. And where did Jesus end up? He ended up on the streets, the highways and byways preaching. So Wesley goes out and he begins to preach, but it wasn't easy. There was a lot of persecution in that time. And I mean, Wesley had to endure a lot of that. He would get up and preach and there'd be hecklers. There'd be people throwing eggs at him, throwing rotten food at him, like a dead cat or something. One time somebody threw it at him. And one time he was chased by an angry mob and had to jump into a lake to escape him. So he wasn't always well-received. How many knows that there's spiritual warfare? But Wesley was determined that he knew the truth and he was going to preach it, and the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. As he preached the true gospel and he persevered, 
he began to see more and more people accept the Lord. More and more people, more and more people. Pretty soon, him and his brother Charles, they came to America. Same thing here, preached the gospel. And because there were so many people accepting the Lord, it ended up gradually becoming uh, what we know as the Methodist Church. And I'm going to tell you something. And my dad will tell you, my dad grew up Pentecostal, and, but his um, grandmother, and there's other people that will tell you that back years ago, the Methodist Church was spirit-filled and Pentecostal. That's why you still see that fire in their logo. Just because the modern church has left Book of Acts Christianity, look, their roots were in the power of God, okay? And so Wesley ended up seeing tremendous success as far as the gospel was concerned. And for the rest of those 52 years after his heart was strangely warmed and he was saved, for 52 years he preached from 1739 to 1791, he rode about 225 to 250,000 miles, mostly by horseback, and preached over 50,000 sermons. Isn't that something? He traveled around 25 miles a day on horseback by average and still found the time to, to write 233 books. So in total, before salvation, after salvation, he preached 65 years, dying at the age of 88. And he left behind anywhere from 1,000 to 1,500 preachers that... Um, you know, started the Methodist movement. It's a movement of revival. And I don't have time to get into it, but some of these were circuit rider preachers. That, would, they, that was their ministry. They were Methodists. They would go out into hills of the country, and they would find these homesteads, and they would ride in there, and they would spend time with them preaching the gospel. And there's no telling how many people they led to the Lord like that. But it's a very sacrificial life. And so, again, the simplicity of the gospel the salvation is so important tonight. See, as we're about to see some things in this nation, etc., around the world, I believe that there's a great revival coming, and it's going to flip-flop a lot of things the way they are right now. But when revival comes, God's going to put his hand among those that will preach holiness and preach the truth, okay? And the gospel is not something where this is so important that people understand. It's not just repeating a prayer. How many times have we heard that? Come down and repeat a prayer. Let me tell you, it's not intellectually agreeing with something. I can tell you some things tonight, and mentally, you can agree with things that I say, and somebody could still not be born again. It's not an intellectual agreement with truths. It's not. It's not joining a church. It's not keeping a set of rules. Now, there, once you truly accept the Lord, and you're really born of God, you're going to be different. That means a lot of things are going to start changing. All of a sudden, you're going to be dumping the alcohol down the drain and flushing the drugs down the toilet, and there's people you used to hang out with that you're just not going to want to hang out with them anymore. And to be quite honest with you, they're probably not going to want to hang around you. There's places you used to go and sinful parties and things you participate in you just don't want to anymore because you're a new creation in Christ. You're different. When the Holy Spirit comes inside like Wesley, my heart was strangely warmed, you're going to be a different person. And once that happens and your life radically changes, not only do you forsake the sin, but now you begin to want to go to church and you want to know the Bible, you want to pray, you, you want to hang around your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're just different. I know whenever I was a kid, there were certain things that I just did not have a taste for. 
I think one of them was broccoli. I can't remember all of it. My parents could probably help. You know how it is. Every kid acts like you're going to die because your parents make you eat something you don't like, right? So they'll remember it more than me. But there are certain things I didn't like. But then as I got older, I did. God does that. When you accept the Lord, you're going to change. There's something inside of you now. The Holy Spirit has come in, and he gives you a heart of flesh where there used to be a heart of stone. You're different. You begin to desire things you used to not to, and, you used, and things that you used to desire are going to be put away. So there's a radical change, but God does this from the inside out. Many times people all over the world feel all these do's and don'ts. That's legalistic from the outside in, but God doesn't do it that way. He changes us from the inside out. Once you have a new heart and you're a different person, you're, the rest of your life will change. The way you think will change, the way you talk will change, and your behavior will change. But during this time that we're living too, I would say the need for a reverential fear of God, the holiness. See, I, I grew up, you know, as we grew up in a coastal, but this was just something I guess we understood, and much of this has been forsaken, but we understood that we needed to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. We needed a prayer language. And we understood that there were just things that you just don't do. And now it seems like there's a, there's a lack of fear of God right now, but I believe with all my heart God's about to deal with this. I believe that there's about to be a revival that's going to bring a lot of change. But the worldliness, the carnality, things in the church world right now, uh, we need that holy fear of God back where there's conviction of the whole, by the Holy Spirit. This is what's so important. Because when the Holy Spirit comes in, he begins to really convict people of sin. You know, and people feel it. I, I've seen it so many times preaching the truth that people, the Holy Spirit will anoint them, and people will come down and they want to get right. You know, they want to change. They want their life to be pleasing to the Lord. But we have to think about when we accept the Lord, how are people viewing things? Is what's coming out of our mouth pleasing to the Lord? Or the things we're doing pleasing to the Lord? We understood that there was things you just stayed away from. I remember John Davis said that. He said, when I was growing up, people knew to avoid certain things, and we just avoided them. But now it seems like anything goes. But these are the times. Well, we can learn as we look at historic revivals, not just this one, we're looking at all of them. But as we look at this, we can see that it's during these times when society has become so dark that that is the time when the Holy Spirit really falls. I've seen, I've read it through history. We read it in the days of Cambridge and, and the Hebridean revival, etc. So just because things get desperate and dark, God has a remnant out there that like the Moravians are going to humble themselves and pray and seek his face. And their prayers, that deep groan, that desperate cry, God will move. But there has to be a lot of times society, for some reason, God allows it to get to a point, and then he comes. And one person said that it's easier for dry wood to catch fire than wet wood. So maybe there's an analogy there where God allows things to get to a certain point. But how many knows that he is faithful? He's going to answer the prayers of his people. And number two, God has to raise up a ministry. And this is going to be a ministry around the nations of the world. It's going to be ministries 
that are like a new wineskin that can handle it. A lot of things where there's worldliness and carnality and things are not right, um, revival may mess things up for them. But there are places that God's going to pour out his spirit. And these are people that will preach the pure gospel, and they will preach holiness, and they'll call people to repentance. But God has to prepare them. Just like you look at Wesley, he had to go through a preparation. I mean, he's on a boat that looked like it was going to sink. And that's where the seed was planted in him, you see. And then he ends up in Aldersgate, Aldersgate where he, uh, his heart was strangely warm, the new birth, but then he goes back to the Moravians. So there's, there was this journey that he was on. He knew religion his whole life, but now he found the Lord. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. I had a time to spend with Steve Hill back in 2003. I told this story, but just bear with me. But as I was with him, he's a great evangelist. And, and Steve, when we met together, he wanted to know, do I really know the Lord or do I just know about the Lord? You see? And so when we met together, I was meeting with him for prayer and for ministry. I wanted to spend time with him. I had questions to ask. And but he looks at me, and the first thing he asks me is, is what, what has God been speaking to you? And it caught me off guard, and I was like, well, it's kind of personal, but, and I started to tell him, and he stopped me, and, because he really didn't want to know. He stopped me, and he said, I just wanted to know that you have a relationship with the Lord. He understood the difference between just being religious. And so... Um, anyway, we were able to spend time together. But what I'm interested in in the days to come, as God is about to send revival and he's going to pour out his spirit, is that as we preach the pure gospel, like in the days of Wesley, God will anoint the pure gospel, and that will cut people to the heart. They'll, that will penetrate, and it will bring people to repentance. But also that message of holiness. But see, holiness, if you're not careful... A lot of people that tend to have a religious spirit about them, holiness will cause them to get in spiritual pride and legalistic. That's dangerous. True holiness is this, that you know how holy God is and you love the Lord and you love your relationship with the Lord and you just simply don't want to do anything or say anything that would grieve the Holy Spirit. You want your life to please the Lord. You know, I think about as you love your spouse, your spouse loves you, that you, you know there are certain things that would really hurt them and also would hurt the marriage. So you avoid those things. You want, you want to build them up. You don't want to hurt them. They don't want to hurt you. It's the same way. You don't want to do anything. And that's true holiness and fear of God is that I love the Lord and I don't want anything in my life or in my home that would grieve the Holy Spirit that would hurt my relationship. And you know as well as I do, those of you that's been in, in River of Life for very long, you know that the, like the tabernacle, there's the outer court, and there were things that they could get away with there that if they took it in the Holy of Holies, they would die. The deeper you're going to go in Christ, it's true, the more that God's going to sanctify you and change you and there's things that you'll see other people, not in a judgmental, critical way. You'll see that maybe they feel like they can get away with it. They can do that, but you know you can't. And it's because they just simply haven't had the encounter that you've had.
It's not that you're better, you see. But the deeper you go in Christ, the more of the worldliness is going to be purged out of you, and things will grieve you that didn't before. You'll, you'll be sitting there, whatever it was that you used to listen to or watch or this, that, and the other, and you find that you just can't have that anymore. You don't want it. You're like, no, I can't listen to that anymore. I can't watch that anymore. There's just, it's just you're just different, and you don't want it. And you, you don't want anything that's going to affect you negatively. You, you want to keep yourself from that, you see. So true holiness is something where God takes you deep in him and purges you. God has to raise up ministries, but he also has to place his hand on certain people. There is a mantle. You know as well as I do as we study revival history, that God has to place like a mantle on different people, different ministries that will carry the revival. And if they're faithful with it, then, you know, that mantle will be there from now on. Now, some people may be lose. They may have their own personal mantle, so to speak, but you can lose that mantle for a great revival if you're not careful. How many knows that God will anoint you and begin to use you? But if you're not careful, that anointing can get stale, and you can kind of lose that anointing. To a degree, it'll probably always be there, but it can diminish. If you're not careful, you can, get, you can drift away from the relationship or you can allow some compromise. You know, compromise is like this. The devil knows not to show up with a pitchfork or something, right, and freak you out. The, so it starts out with this, you know that you shouldn't, but you compromise here, and then it's the next thing. Then it's the next thing. And then pretty soon, a couple years later, your walk with God is dead. There's, the fresh anointing is gone. You've drifted, and you know it, and you, you say to yourself, how did I ever get here? Well, let's find our way back. Amen. So anyway, this is just something for tonight that I felt God put on my heart. But the main thing is the purity of the gospel. That message that Wesley preached, the religious people did not want to hear it. Wesley went to them first. It reminded me of how Paul went to the synagogues first and preached. Did you ever read that in the book of Acts? Every time Paul would go into a city, he first place he would go to the synagogue. And next thing you know, they were chasing him out, wanting to kill him. And so he says, basically, he says, fine, you don't find yourself worthy of eternal life. Then it goes over here. And he'd go out to the highways and the byways, to the streets, and people did want to hear it. So the true gospel is not a set of rules. It's not join this church or pray this prayer or do this and don't do this. It is a new birth, but it's only by your faith in Christ alone. It's not something you can earn. It's something Jesus already did. So anyway, I wanted to make that real clear. So when, when we start seeing the harvest come in, it's not about denominations. It's not about legalism. It's not about spiritual pride or anything like that. It's just simply knowing him and pleasing him. That's what God's going to anoint, that right there, to truly know him and to live in a way that pleases him. All right, so Father, I thank you for your word tonight. I thank you for the purity of the gospel. Lord, help us that all of us will truly know you and be born again, not religious, not legalistic, it's not about all these other things, but Lord, a holiness and the fear of God must come, but first that we might know you.
truly born of God, being a new creation. Lord, help us to truly know you and to please you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So go ahead and shut down the recordings.